I mean, if you think about how Mother Nature created wonderful things and not so wonderful things like human beings, the process of evolution is a process of the survival of the fittest. It is creation of variation and selection. That is what drives evolution. And I think the same process of natural selection drives innovation. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkowski. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Professor Christian Turwish. He is a professor at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. He's chair of Wharton's Operations, Information and Decisions Department. He's written a number of fantastic books. The one we're going to chat to him a bit about today, I guess, is his newest book, which is the Innovation Tournament Handbook. He wrote his first book was the Innovation Tournaments a few years ago, and he's come back with a, okay, if that was theoretical, what does doing it look like? And so we're going to chat about that. We're going to talk about how to run the innovation process in your business. He was also a co-author of Connected Strategies, and we've had his co-author on the podcast before, and Wharton run a Connected Strategies online course, which was excellent. And so today we're going to talk through how do you build this tournament? And it's less about maybe the Premier League and more about Wimbledon or the World Cup. So how do you generate thousands of ideas in your organization? And even just saying that, it feels overwhelming to come up with a thousand ideas. But Christian's view is if you can't come up with a thousand ideas, you are unlikely to come up with a winner. He reflects back whilst we're talking on, I guess, Team GB's ability to win gold medals at the London Olympics and how they went and sourced potential athletes with medal chances in a number of sports. And of course, they went to speak to thousands of teenagers, children on their path. And actually, it doesn't matter how many people they spoke to. What matters is how many medals did they win. So in terms of innovation, it's less about how many ideas we have than how many actually we get through to making us money. And from his perspective, this tournament starts with some ideas We then select some ideas. We give it to some teams. These teams compete in multiple rounds, maybe over sort of six months. And what we're left with is a number of good ideas, which we've then tested with pilots or MVPs or prototypes or data, or maybe we've got LOIs from customers. Certainly, I was working with a client recently that runs a process very similar to that. So whenever they're doing product development on their platform, on their software platforms, in most cases, this is co-funded by their customers. So you get, you run a process over six months, but he said, look, what we do is we're aiming to destigmatize failure. So we're not trying to come up with one great idea right at the beginning. And he, we talk about this sort of delusion that persists in the human mind. You know, when we look back with hindsight, 
It's very clear that people made wrong decisions or right decisions. But at the time, those decisions were, it was impossible for people to know whether they were making the right decision or not. And so here, this is a volume game. How do we reduce the stigma of failure? Failure is part of playing. If you think about playing football or tennis or rugby, I mean, I've played rugby most of my life. Nobody cared about winning or losing. It was sort of slightly irritating at the time, but I wasn't playing professionally. I didn't get paid to play. So it was nice to win, but not really soul-destroying to lose. You just go training again and go back. And the joy was in taking part in a team sport. And so we should try and build innovation in the same way. How do we build an innovation tournament in our organization so that every six months we're running an innovation tournament? And that means we've got a lots of people involved, lots of ideas. We're running it in a relatively low-cost way. I think it's a fascinating insight into how to take the idea and, and take it. I, we'd like to have more ideas. We want to be innovative. We want to drive either innovation, which is incremental or disruptive, set the parameters, run a tournament, adjust, repeat. Fantastic conversation with Christian. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. My name is Christian Terbys. I am a professor at the Wharton School, have been here at the University of Pennsylvania for the last 25 years. I have a long title, but basically I, I grew up as an ops guy. I teach operations management, making things faster, better, cheaper. I talk about lean, Six Sigma, capacity, Toyota production system. But over the years, developed a passionate interest in innovation management. I applied kind of process thinking to innovation, had a lot of fun with that. And as I got older, I kind of drifted into adjacent areas to operations like innovation, strategy, technology, and found that transition to be fun. And I look forward to our discussion here. I was speaking this morning to Alex Osterwilder, and we were talking about how businesses build innovation engines. And, you know, he, he said, look, you're going to have people in the organization who have ideas, who are sort of entrepreneurs, but the business needs to operationalize the system. It's not enough to just give those people time. And so that was the first time I think I'd thought it, that's a sort of an interesting thing where the operations people or an operations mindset is abso absolutely fundamental to creating successful innovation. Whereas I think most people think it's the idea. And I guess it's a bit like in the startup world. There's there's no value in the idea. It's only value in the execution. Yeah, absolutely. Right in the startup world, you have one idea and that carries you really far. But if you're running in a big organization, innovation has to be a process. It has to be a repeated endeavor. And I would argue even for that startup, if you only have one idea, you may want to make sure that that's a good one. And one thing that I see with my students, many of the Wharton students these days are creating their own startups, are becoming entrepreneurs. Well, you want to make sure that you end up with the best idea possible. You don't want to just run with any idea. And so before you commit, before you go through all that sweat of execution and implementation, I would encourage you to have looked at hundreds, if not thousands of ideas that you're digging that hole in the right location because that's the only way that you're going to find the gold. Make sure that you, you know, you've built a gold mine on a location where there's gold on the ground. Yeah, that hole, it's got to be a problem or an unmet need. It's got to be, a, I mean, there's got to be a business model in it. There's got to be a business in it. It can't just be, I, all the time people go, here's a thing that I don't think anyone has thought of before. Seems unlikely, but they say that all the time. And then they go and build a thing and then they go and try and sell it to people. And it's like, mm, you probably have built the wrong thing because you just made the, this up in your own head.
Well, we should maybe think about like what an innovation actually is, right? So innovation has this word, I, I'm not good at Latin and Greek, but there's this thing nova in there, right? The novelty. And so I think we can all agree that novel alone is not enough, right? I mean, there might be a reason why something has never been built or implemented because it's just outright stupid. In my view, you need three things. You need a need, an unmet need. You need a solution to that need. And that solution has to meet the need in some form that value gets created. And that value can be money, that value can be healthy patients, a reduction of carbon footprint in the world, world peace, I don't care. It doesn't have to be money. But I think from a business school professor and from an ease of measurement, let's kind of just take money here as a proxy. A novel match between a solution and a need that creates value. And so I think once we have those pieces together, we have an innovation, and now we can think about, like, how do we get there, right? I mean, how do we fight that match? What do you say to people is the way in which to structure that, that, that process? Well, the problem, of course, is that at the outset, when you put together solution and need, you don't know whether you're going to gen generate value or not. That value generation is a hypothesis. It's also easy to look backwards and say, like, ha, ha, look at that innovator, that was a stupid idea. It was a luxury of hindsight. We, we know. The, the problem is like when we go into that matching process, we don't know. And that means that I have to have many options. I, I have to have many ideas so that I can have some form of a selection process, a Darwinian process, a, a process of survival of the fittest that is basically allowing me to pick the best one. I mean, if you think about how Mother Nature created wonderful things and not so wonderful things like human beings. The process of evolution is a process of the survival of the fittest. It is creation of variation and selection. Right? That is what yeah. drives evolution. And I think the same process of natural selection drives innovation. And so start with lots of things, whittle it down. Absolutely. The innovation tournament, is that part of that process of whittling down or creating ideas in the first place? So, so both, right? I mean, so our first book on the theme was called Innovation Tournaments, Creating and Selecting Exceptional Opportunities. Mm -hmm. So it has these two elements to it, creating and selecting. I think more often than not, people who are new to innovation only like to talk about creation because creation is fun, right? I mean, you just kind of kick around ideas and the list gets longer and longer and you feel productive about that. But having a list of a thousand ideas doesn't do you any good unless you're able to select the ideally the best one, but oftentimes the best ones in, in plural. So creation alone is not a lot. And do you see a generic structured pattern for, you know, if you've, I guess as a business school professor, you've got something you can put on a whiteboard or something you can chalk up on a board as you're talking. What is there a sort of a flow, number of steps? Absolutely. Right? So the idea of a tournament is just like in sports, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, you're in England, Premier League or, yeah. or Wimbledon, right? There's yeah. basically a, a map of how that tournament is going to play out. In the, in the Premier League, it's almost a year long of playing everybody against everybody. I don't think that that would make for a good innovation process. <laughs> I think Wimbledon is probably better, right? If you look at the first draw of kind of the qualifiers and the 128, and then it narrows down to the final at the finalists. 
So oftentimes I hear people talk about the innovation funnel, right? It has yeah. this wide mouth and the narrow ending. I like that metaphor except for one thing, which is that in a funnel, just from a fluid dynamics, everything that you pour into the funnel comes out at the bottom. That's not how yes. Wimbledon works, right? Not everybody who is starting Wimbledon <laughs> is going to win. So it's, it's more like a set of filters, but yes. that, that kind of that shape of the, the Wimbledon draw, I think is something that we should have in mind as we think about our, our innovation process. And also, I guess what you're saying there also is that they're going from round one to round two is, is hard, but it's harder to go from round two to round three and round three to round four. What, and what, sort, of, what sort of things do you put in as these filters or hurdles? So I think once we agree on that architecture, on that, that, that flow, on that filtration process, we have to make a couple of decisions. Right? One of them is where do these contestants, the ideas come from? And one of them is what, exactly what you mentioned. It's like, what are the hurdles? What are the rounds of elimination? Do we play one-on-one or, I mean, this is the nature of tennis, of course, but if it would be a running race, we could have four people race against each other and pick the, the first one. Just think about yeah. track and field Olympics where, again, they also have multiple rounds, but sometimes the, the top two out of a heap uh, advance forward. So those are our decisions now. So you, you ask about selection. So I have to have a referee, so to say, and more often than not, that can be an internal referee like management or an external referee like customers and mm-hmm. market research. And I have to have some form of a filtration ratio. Do I go from a thousand ideas to a hundred ideas or do I go from a thousand ideas to 400 ideas? Like at, at, uh-huh. what, at what speed do I narrow it down? And again, I think the world of sports is a good kind of metaphor to keep in mind. That's exactly like, you know, our friend Infantino in, in the FIFA world. That's exactly what he does is thinking about draw the, basically designing the tournament. Now, yeah. in his case, of course, the goal is not to find the best nation playing soccer. And you as an English man and me as a German, we can have long discussions about that. <laughs> but his goal, of course, is to maximize uh, kind of the entertainment factor. And so have you, got, have you got an example of what some of these hurdles might be or filtration steps might be? I use one a lot and I really like it. And you will maybe find it shockingly simple, but here it is. I always ask the groups I'm working with, what idea would you be most excited about if this idea moved forward into the next round? You just say of the group who are currently still in the tournament, which is, which is the best idea? So, well, I like it for two reasons. One is you've crowdsourced the idea, so it's not your fault. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've actually used a similar technique often. If we're thinking about promoting somebody in the team, I'd say the same thing. If you didn't get the job, who do you think in the team would be the best person to be the team leader or the manager? Because it helps manage their ego and if it's not them right? All of that comes together. So you're not only you're helping get the best person or get a view, but you're also helping manage the fallout when it's, if their idea isn't chosen. Yeah. And I think oftentimes people hear, people use criteria, right? I mean, criteria sound very scientific, right? The mm-hmm. most common ones in innovation are, again, the definition of an innovation being a novel match between a solution and the need that creates value. The most obvious criteria, is there a need? Does the solution meet the need? So some form of technology feasibility, and does it create value, some form of an ROI? The problem is that when you're doing this tournament, 
at the early stages of our idea becoming an innovation and a success, we have no idea. We have no idea about the ROI. So if I run a tournament and I say, like, the idea is that 20% was the highest ROI are going to move to the next level, I'm basically ending up in a bullshit competition, right? I'm basically, everybody's going to fake the numbers. Nobody has any idea how big the market is. Nobody has any idea how, how much it will cost. The numbers are total bogus. Everybody knows it. And so what's going to happen is we're basically going to go into this race of who can tell the biggest lie. If I'm asking you, however, which idea would we as a group be most excited about, that is something as subjective as the question itself is. That is something we can objectively measure. Also, I guess if we play this tournament with some regularity over some period of time, so I accept that my idea is not the best one. Maybe I join the team with the idea I'm excited about. Maybe I go back to the beginning and start with another idea with the same team or a different team. But I haven't, you've lowered the bar in terms of sense of failure. It, we're playing a game, you know, and, and whilst, whilst professional sportsmen and women go out and earn millions of pounds, the rest of us who play team sport do it. And other than us, nobody gives a shit about the result, right? And in fact, often when you're playing team sport, lots of people play sport and even they don't care about the result. So you've taken away that stigma of failure. And it's just a case of you get better at playing the game by playing the game. You get better at playing the game. And as you say, you are going on the tennis court knowing that one of you is not going to win. And when you play with your family, when you play with your friends, that sets an expectation that it doesn't matter who's going to win today, right? I mean, I, I really like how you put the stigma of failure is gone. And I do exactly what, what you were mentioning on the ones that didn't win. That So say we have a group of 50 people, we just voted the 10 best ideas to make it to the next round. And I do exactly what you said. I said, like, well, look, 40 of you have now not won with their idea. Why don't you join the 10 ideas that you just voted on and you will help these ideas go forward? And so that way the ideas become co-owned by the community and we're all in that together. We can all celebrate the success of those 10 ideas as opposed to having 40 out of 50 people being grumpy that they just lost. Yes. And is this sort of giving people half a day or a day a week to take part in this off the corner of their desks? Is that how you typically do this? or? I think if you think of a day a week, I think that's on the high side, in my opinion. Okay. I mean, so we do these events that last one or two days, but we do them more on a yearly or twice a year basis. Okay. As opposed to doing it weekly. Now there is follow-up work for these ideas. And so you might end up spending a couple of days, especially if your ideas, ideas doing well. I, I don't think you should do this on a weekly basis, but I mean, that's a decision that you have to make. I think that will vary a lot by kind of by organization. How much autonomy, how much decentralized innovation do you want to have happen? versus how much do you need the troops to walk in a direction that is set by strategy. How many rounds would you typically go through? I typically do three or four rounds. The okay. first one is a crowdsourcing exercise, often done, oftentimes done online, where we go from hundreds, if not thousands of ideas to something like 50 or 100. Then we have a workshop. So hang on, let's just, just take me back. So I just see if this makes sense, the way I'm thinking about it. So we go out to the organization and we say, everyone into the organization, what ideas have we got? 
is this typically incremental? So this is this is changing things with our existing customers and our existing processes and what type okay. of ideas do you want? And clearly you have to match that with the audience. I mean if you're yeah. if you're doing a tournament with the British healthcare system, I mean I understand like most healthcare systems is kind of in some sense a little under pressure these days. And you're doing a, a tournament where you want to improve the patient experience. Yeah. Right? You can reach out to everybody working in the healthcare system, but you will get ideas all over the map, right? From yes. improving waiting experiences, waiting times to treatment protocols to follow up home care, ideas will be all over the map. And that's a good thing. But if you're looking for a cure to cancer, probably the frontline nurse that is doing the chemotherapy, that person will not come up with, with the new cure to cancer. So if you're yes. looking for a drug, well, you probably want to do that with the Oxbridge crowd and have the university elite scientists work on that. So that, that is something that you just have to customize and apply the right tool for the job. So we go out the organization, we go, and everybody in any organization has got a stone in their shoe. They've got a thing that they think is so obvious to them and that they can't believe the rest of the organization hasn't already seen how obvious it is and fixed it. So we get all of those thousand stones out of everybody's shoes and we have some teams. They look at the ideas, they pick the idea that they're at that point then most interested in. So then you've, the, the cream's come to the top, the teams have come together, they've picked some ideas. And then you say, you've got X amount of time to see how you could take this and create value. Absolutely, right. And I, the, the one point I would push back a little bit is if the ideas are small little tweaks to existing problems that we agree with 100% likelihood are good, let's just fix these bloody... Okay, well, I, I, what I do in an organization, we did this with a client the other day, it, I call it stupid rules, which is often these things aren't stupid rules, but it's that sort of sense that often bureaucracy has developed and often we just run a session and everybody emails them in and we just say, yes, 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 yes. And then what happens, what, what you see is that I was doing this session up in Leeds for a client and I said, okay, what's the idea you're holding on to because you think you might get fired if you say it out loud? We want, we, we want those ones now. And then a couple more hands go up and it's like, yes. Uh, I think oftentimes it's like a, an extra catch. So you're casting the, the net widely or maybe new products and services. Okay. So you're hoping for some significant innovation that either attracts new customers or grows the business. And, and, and as you are engaging with your employees for these new ideas, you find out a lot of other shit, as I'm using your word here, <laughs> uh, you find out a lot of these little stones that are bothering people. And I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, I yeah. that can allow you to say like, oh, that was a good idea. I'm going to fix that problem, and it does two things. Right? It A, fixes a problem, and it B, creates feedback to the employees that this is a process that it's good to be a part of. Yes. And then that's how you fire them up and to come back. And maybe the next time, they, it's not just a stone in the shoe, but it's a new shoeling. Yeah, I would, I, what I find is people say, I've been trying to get this fixed for days, weeks, months, years. And like, you know, that... The opposite of them feeling like they're engaged in the process is the fact that nobody seems to listen is just grinding them down, right? And it's just amazing. Anyway, so we get, so we, so we then do, okay, brilliant. I, I think I've now, in my head, I've got a sense of how this might work inside an organization. I think up to the point where we've done four rounds and we've got this idea, but at this point, do we then keep the team on it or does it then go into a more corporate innovation engine? 
Uh, two comments on that. I think the first one is something that took me a while to figure out, but I think it's really important, which is, is the idea is going from a raw idea towards a final, it's not just enough to vote on it and say, like, how excited are we? I think that works really well in the beginning. But at some point, and I would say before the finals, when you've narrowed it down maybe to a dozen idea, you have to move from promise to delivery. You have to show me with some real data that you're gaining traction. That might be a prototype, a pilot. I mean, the, the kind of innovation world more recently is, is talking a lot about minimum viable products. I very much like that framework. But you have to de-risk it somehow. Right? You have to show me the biggest uncertainties, be it in the technology that you can de-risk through a prototype, or be it in market consumer responses that you could de-risk to a minimum viable product. Uh, you have to show me data as opposed to just telling me a good story. For that, it is necessary that you probably need some help from the corporate side. Right? If you're building a prototype, you need access to engineering resources, if you're building a market research test, the pilot, a beta, you probably need some people from marketing involved. So at some point, that innovator team that we formed at the beginning around the person who came up with the idea needs corporate help. And that's a good thing. Yes. And, and if you're going to do this forever, then that's where really the, the key investment is. Who runs this team that helps facilitate the MVP, the surveys, the customer interactions? letters of intent or whatever we're using to show customer intent. Yeah, and I think the person who kicked off the idea should be rewarded, if you will, by staying involved in that process. But if these are becoming major additions to your product lines, I mean, let's just say real here, right? I mean, you, you might be talking about millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of investment managing large teams. At some point, you're not doing a favor to the person who came up with the idea. Uh, having that person in charge. I think, again, that is something <laughs> that management can can look at the person, uh, again, and it will really depend if it's a frontline worker, they might just not have the political influence, the experience, the training. But I think we should we should celebrate that person. And I think that person would be happy to see that some form of vice president takes over that project as long as he or she deserves gets the credit that uh, he or she deserves and i think that's really i think that's really good i one of the things though is if this thing is disruptive where do we put it right if if this innovation is is going to have an impact on somebody somebody's existing pnl do we put it outside the organization in an is there an is there a different structure that it it reports in via the CEO and not through the rest of the organization. What's your... Yeah, that's a classic dilemma, right? It's this notion that you are you're Barnes and Noble and you're starting the online unit. Do you bring it inside? Do you bring it outside? And I can tell you, as any business school professor had like to hedge his or her bets, I can tell you a story either way, right? I mean, the story of having it outside, I think, is the obvious one is that it doesn't get slowed down by the bureaucracies and the naysayers who all have a vested interest in keeping the status quo. And so that's a really good argument to bring it outside. The opposite argument to bring it inside is the only way that you can educate the establishment about the power and the opportunities of this disruptive innovation is that you confront them with it and you show it to them inside. 
So I've seen its story told both ways. I think the reason why the disruptive innovation is called a disruptive innovation is there's no easy and right and peaceful way that you can tame it and bring it to your organization. It's, it's called the innovator's dilemma. Yeah, uh, for, for, for a reason. <laughs> it's called the dilemma for a reason. At Rackspace, I thought that I think I didn't understand what we were doing or why at the point. And I look back now and I can see, I think we did it artfully. We were the number one hoster of Linux. 75% of Red Hat Online was in our data centers. Open source was in our DNA. But the biggest commercial opportunity was to work on the Microsoft platform. So we took 100 smart people and put them in a different office and said, reimagine this thing from the ground up. Just do that, run that. And then we brought it back together and it was sort of a reverse takeover of the new one overcame because the opportunity was so much bigger and the growth was from that team. But if, if you split them up, pulling them back together would have been impossible. And if you'd hired a completely new team, then putting the cultures back together would have been impossible. So I think I look back and see that as being work that was artfully done. Yeah, I mean, but culture is an easy easy one to blame, right? I mean, there's a saying that culture is strategy for lunch. So whenever we have something that doesn't go as, as we hope, it's it's always easy to blame it on culture. I think as managers, it's a little bit of a lame excuse in the sense of that culture is something that hopefully you as a leader have an influence on, right? And you can create it and shape it. And so I think in that sense, that is when we measure, when we talk about managing innovation, that is something that needs to be on your radar. Okay. Inside an organization, what sort of success rate should I be planning for? I mean, if I'm running this tournament, how many of these things are going to generate something that's of value? So here's a whole, I think it sounds a little paradoxical, but the lower the better, right? If I have an organization, if, if I run tournaments and 50% of the ideas are succeeding, then I didn't generate enough ideas. I want you to go from a thousand ideas to one idea. And then basically the best idea out of a thousand is going to be a really, really good idea. And so in that sense, you might say, like, well, look, Christian, I, I have like one out of a thousand, like 99.99% fiat. And I say, like, that's a good thing, right? So I think that this is kind of a right, probability of success ratio is misleading for exactly that reason, that I want to be having the best idea out of many, many, many ideas. The tournament, of course, as a whole should succeed, meaning that every round I run the tournament, I should have a, a set of good ideas. But that, that filtration ratio of, of the probability of success, I couldn't care less about because the early rounds in the tournaments are so cheap. They're so inexpensive. You can fail so quickly and so cheaply that why, why do I care? Well, it's, again, it's about removing the stigma and cost of failure. And so if you're doing if you're kicking it off and you're going to go like, this is every six months we're going to do this. You know, and then you can you can iterate quite quickly. You know, you might say, we're going to go from X to Y in six months. And oh, when we get to Y, we had too many or we didn't have enough. Oh, well, we could do it again. Or we could, cull, we could have a fifth round and cull again. It's very simple until you then start getting to the, okay, we need now need to pick a small number, one in a thousand or whatever the number is to then say, okay, well, at this point, we go to MVP prototype some sort of testing. I mean, I remember when the Olympics were in London, the UK had, building up to that, a fairly systemic process of, of finding athletic talents in the, kind of the decade building up to that. And again, I don't care about your probability of success of 
the kids that you kind of screen for being a marathon runner, how many of them became marathon runners? I couldn't care less. The only thing that I should use to evaluate the quality of that Olympic selection process is how many gold medals you win, right? Yes. And so, again, I think people are over overemphasizing this probability of success exactly for the reasons that you just mentioned, that they, they just look at failure as, as failure. Failure is part of the tournament. Not everybody can win. And so just get over it. It's almost the antithesis of, you know, sort of woke primary school where everybody's a winner and we don't do races anymore because people don't want to lose. We don't want any losers. And it's just like, you know, you put kids out in the street with a football and a couple of jumpers for goalposts. Somebody's winning and somebody's losing all day long. Yeah. My daughters do that immediately. They start playing a game. Somebody's winning, somebody's losing. Fab. What is the, if you look across all of those tools that you mentioned at the beginning, when you were describing the areas in which you're involved as a business school professor, from an operations perspective, where do you see innovation, the relative importance of innovation in terms of success and where that is in real life? Again, I think let's remember the solution has a need component and it has a solution component to it. I think we're living in a time when the needs more than ever. I mean, just think about the tragedies that we see in this world from global warming to people peacefully living with each other, diseases coming out of a pandemic, right? So the needs are plentiful. Um, and on the solution side, we're living in equally exciting times where with AI, with genetic engineering, with other breakthroughs in science, Again, we have more potential solutions. And so we have more needs, we have more solutions. And then combinatorically, uh, the matching potential just goes up exponentially. And so I think more than ever, do we have to think about how we manage that process because the stakes are, are high. I, I was thinking, I don't know, if I take a business, business X, and you were to say, should they... And maybe it's maybe it depends on where they are, but is looking at operational excellence versus looking at innovation? Because it feels to me that most companies focus on operational excellence rather than innovation. They see that as the thing they need to fix. And innovation in itself is almost is a change, something new that they need to do that they're not doing at the moment. Yeah, I have my hesitations agreeing with you on that one because <laughs> I, I don't want you to play out operations against innovation in the sense that you can have amazing operations, be very efficient in what you're doing if you, you kind of take operations as a management of efficiency. But operations also, more often than not, should better, faster, cheaper means better quality products to the customers, better delivery lead times. Operations oftentimes are the sources of new business models. So I kind of don't like operations against innovation, but I think there is a fundamental trade-off in the strategy literature that I think captures what you have in your mind, I think slightly better. And that is the tension between exploration versus exploitation. Yes. Or exploiting what I have versus exploring the new land. And I think that is an inherent trade-off in any organization. I think more often than not, if you're sitting on a gold mine, if the location where you're operating in is attractive to you, mine that gold, right? I mean, you would be stupid to not mine the gold. If, if you are, to stay with that matter, if you're a gold miner in the gold rush and you've just found a gold mine, 
just take the gold as opposed to looking for another gold mine. Well, I was just thinking sort of Xerox versus Fuji. One of them said, oh, look, film's going to go. Where, what capabilities have we got? Where else could we exploit our capability? And the other one went, we're in the film business. We're in the film business. We're in the, oh, there's no film business. And it's just, it's, or, you know, blockbuster Netflix. The blockbuster Netflix story wouldn't have been so interesting if Netflix hadn't nearly run out of money and tried to sell themselves to blockbuster and blockbuster had said, no, we don't like your margins. I mean, you know, that those, some of those things make those stories more entertaining, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned film, right? It was Kodak, probably the one oh, that sorry, Kodak. had the highest margins and they, they failed bitterly. And the irony, of course, was similarly to Blockbuster versus Netflix, it was Kodak who invented the digital camera. They just didn't act on it. Or even you go back further and you look at, I think Bell Labs in, invented the fax machine and the voice voicemail, but they thought that they both of those things would reduce the number of phone calls that were made and therefore shelved them and somebody else sort of came up with the idea or just there's their world is full of these people who invent stuff but can't in, exploit them I, I think we're going back to a, something that i mentioned earlier on that at the outset when you put together a solution and need you don't know yet whether you generate value or not and yes. i think it is so easy to go back in history with the luxury of hindsight and say like haha right how could you fail the literature of innovation is full of very famous very smart people making horrible predictions, right? I mean, start from Bill Gates, believing that 64 kilobytes should be enough for everybody, to the founders of IBM who believed that, you know, there's going to be a world market of 10 computers, to the prediction that the Beatles would go nowhere, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the literature of innovation is full of bad predictions. There have been studies done on venture capitalists, uh, on market researchers, even the top of the field, is very bad at predicting what's going to happen. So I think we should just acknowledge that. It's, it's really hard. And I think it's really unfair for that reason to put blame on people who have turned left where with the luxury of hindsight, they should have turned right. I think, though, inherent in that, and the reason I think that those stories have such power is almost why I see people all the time, you know, in an organization that's doing some innovation and there's some investment in that. A bit of the organization says, well, you know, you've given them a million pounds. When are we going to get a return on that? If you'd given me a million pounds, I'd have done something with it. And so there's a sort of that linearity that people, you know, why can't we make a decision and get it right? There's a sort of the rest of the organization is against experimentation and wants certainty. And so, so often people have a small number of projects that run on and on and on and on and on and we're never going to work. And so clearly, the more riskier it gets, the further out you are in the horizon of innovation, right? The, the risk-reward profile will change, right? I mean, think, think about as a German, I've looked at the car companies in Germany, like BMW, Mercedes, Volkswagen, a lot. And look how until five years ago, they, they were poo-pooing the electric vehicle market, right? They, they knew they had margins, they had established customers, they had existing technologies in the combustion world, and they would just basically stay and put 99% of their work on that market. Tesla, think of Elon Musk, what you like, was basically running circles around them with a the technology. I mean, companies like BMW, like GM, had electric cars already 20, 30, 40 years ago, but they did not have the, the guts to commit themselves to that for the exact same reason that you mentioned I think, though, with Tesla, you're selling the value 
there's a different value creation because certainly in those early days, the people who were buying a Tesla were prepared to sacrifice a whole load of other things that were not a sacrifice if you bought a BMW. Oftentimes when we see disruption in an industry, it's not that the new technology is better than the old technology. It's just different. When you were sacrificing your Kodak film, for most people, the first digital camera produced <laughs> worse, ca worse pictures. The pictures were pixels suddenly, right? You had, <laughs> you had a resolution problem. And so you sacrifice this because now you could do it at zero marginal cost. It was digital. You could kind of put it on your computer. And so that observation that you just made, I think it's just so critical that when disruption happens, it's not that the better a new technology suddenly gets kind of comes in from Mars, but the preferences of computer consumers shift to a bundle of attributes that are just different. Yeah, or a chunk of customers. Initially, it's a chunk of customer. And at some point, you, that new technology develops a beachhead. Yes. And it, the chunk of customer grows and grows. And at some point, the thing that you previously sacrificed in the, in the case of digital photography image resolution, at some point, it becomes good enough for the mass market, right? And then the disruption really. Because often those disruptive technologies have that sort of, you know, crossing the chasm moment. You know, whereas today I'm buying a Tesla because I want to feel really smug. And so they're selling me smugness and I'm prepared to sacrifice build quality. And then the BMW driver says, well, I'm not prepared to sacrifice build quality. So Tesla's build quality now has to have a, is a different table stakes. And I have to overcome the, I mean, I, we've, you know, we're down on a farm in the new forest and a number of our clients come down in, and these are now sort of mainstream car users who aren't, who now, because of the corporate tax arrangements now have an electric car and they get, how am I going to get home? The, my perception is that the mindset of these people has changed. Two years ago, the Tesla drivers would have turned up and they'd, they'd have worked it out and it was a bit complicated, but they knew where to go. And here we get people get to the farm and they're like, I just don't think I can get home. I don't know what to do. And people say, well, I'm gonna, just going to stay with my petrol or diesel car because the infrastructure isn't enough to make this easy. Like it has to be as easy as going and filling up. And we're, mi we're miles, we're miles away from that gap closing. Yeah, so once you're in the mass market, at some point, you have to have a minimum level of performance that is just good enough for everyone. And price, right? Because at the minute, there's a convenience and a price gap. And I just think, you know, governments all around the world saying, oh, we're going to be uh, no combustion engines after 2025. It's like, or 2020 or 2030. It's like, to me, I look at that and go, I think they're delusional at the moment. Well, I, I don't want to be making a sales pitch here, but I think uh, in, uh, having a Tesla, I find that the charging network is here really good in yeah. the US. And at the same time, we have a Rivian as well, a no, so a non-Tesla electric car. Yeah. The charging network outside Tesla is horrible. Well, and that's where I think, have Tesla open sourced their charging technology? Well, they're in the process of opening. Yeah. So it's a really interesting question right whether they should open it up for everyone so they are converting the first charging stations to non-tesla cars i'm really just shocked to see how the rest of the auto industry and the federal government has not been able to create an electric charging network anywhere close to tesla's quality despite again it's clear that this is the way the future is going and they have thrown billions and billions of money at that. So I'm, I'm disappointed by that. The question whether Tesla should open or not open the charging network, 
I'm I'm on the fence for that one. But Elon decided to open it. I think again, big credit to him in the sense that his vision is to electrify uh, the automotive industry. And I think for that goal, not for shareholder value for Tesla, but for the goal of electrifying America, I think opening up the charging network makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Fab. Christian, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? You know, I was a computer science undergrad. So I remember in the 1990s, a friend of mine and I got together we had a class on neural networks and expert systems. And so what we thought we would do is we would we would get rich. And so we, we <laughs> took neural networks and trained them on stock market data. Uh-huh. And when I say trained them, we literally went to the library and took old newspapers and typed in the stock market prices. And surprise, surprise, we didn't get rich with that method. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of abandoned the AI field out of disappointment 30 years ago. And that was clearly a mistake, right? I think I, <laughs> I, I should have stayed with this and really only got more recently, a couple of months back into that, uh, just overwhelmed like everybody else in the world by the advantage, advances in large language models, chat GPT. So uh, big regret there. Ah, oh, fabulous. And other than, I mean, we've had, we've had your colleague and co-author on of Connected Strategy before on the show, and you've written Innovation Tournament, the Innovation Tournament Handbook and Innovation Tournaments. Other than those fabulous books, what else do you think, maybe something you're reading now, something you've read, things around innovation, what, what other books should people pick up and read or listen to? My son just had me read The Arsenal of Democracy, which is basically a book describing how the Allied forces got together and rebuilt the defense industry to kick the butts of the Nazis. And I thought at the time that we're seeing the war in the Ukraine, we as a Western world have massive problems in in arms production, creating the supply of, of tanks, of ammunition to support the war. I found that book really eye-opening for the military challenges that are happening at the moment, but also for kind of the climate change challenges. Right? I mean, if we want to get serious on the global warming front, on, on energy transformation, I think it takes a massive scale effort. And reading that book, I think it came out 2015, but I think it's, it's very current as a story, makes you realize that humankind is able to rise to the challenge when needed. And so I think it's, it's a great kind of call to action. It's called The Arsenal of Democracy by A.J. Bame. And it, it really literally talks about how Detroit, Roosevelt, Churchill kind of came together and built that machinery and the industry and the operations that created the winning strategy in World War II. Fab. And did you, when you were reading it, were there any echoes of the COVID-19 pandemic as well? I read it before COVID-19, oh, okay. before the war of Ukraine. There is a book, oh my God, I'm blanking on the title. There's a book on how the COVID vaccine was developed by the, the folks in Mainz, by BioNTech in Mainz, Germany. Very moving book. And the book is called The Vaccine Inside the Race to Conquer the COVID-19 Pandemic. Wonderful book. It really talks about how the founders were basically having their vision, their eyes on cancer when they were doing the research 
and picked up the opportunity for COVID really early and then were very smart and systematic in exploring that, involving something that is like an innovation tournament because in drug development, you always have to pursue multiple paths of action because you don't know which one works. Also, super well written. Again, as as a German, I, I read the book in German, but the English title is called The Vaccine. Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.